numbers are almost incomprehensible, right? Sometimes when we see the statistics, and, and I look at statistics a lot, sometimes our eyes can begin glazing over because the numbers are 140, 188 million. And just how do we process those numbers? Can I just, it, the, the, the way that you can look at it is, you know, one out of every three people on this earth, a third of us, are in a context that they're not only unreached, but the chances of them meeting a Christian in their lifetime is less than 10%. The need is great for believers to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, um, I had a conversation about this. Uh, was, I was visiting some of our missionaries in the country of Australia, and we have a very unique min- ministry going on there. One of our missionaries is actually reaching Australian billionaires. And there's a, uh, on, on their Wall Street, on the Australian Wall Street, in the penthouse suite, uh, there was a billionaire who became a believer, and he wanted to reach his friends for Christ, and so he, he uh, got to know one of our missionaries, and so our, one of our missionaries has started a Bible study amongst the elite of the elite in the, uh, in the stock exchange, they're mining magnets and stock magnets. They're, they're, I mean, this is the, the richest of the rich in Australia, and they're having a Bible study together. I was invited to that Bible study to go and, and to share. That wasn't intimidating at all, by the way, uh, as, you're, as you're sharing with those, uh, those men. And, and we're gathered together, and, and one of the men asked me the question that I want to talk about today. And his question was, why come all the way to Australia? to talk about Jesus. I had a similar conversation, very different context. My wife and I were in the Gambia, and we were with our team that's doing medical work in the Gambia, and almost the opposite worlds that you could think of, okay? Uh, These are uh, uh, the Wolof people in the Gambia, and they're a Muslim uh, uh, people group, and we're traveling in and working with our medical team, and the medical team had gotten to know uh, the village chief in a village and wanted to introduce me as the president of ABWE coming into the village. It's a big deal. You have to meet the, the tribal chief. You have to meet him. And so we came, and we met him, and, and so we're sitting, and there's not a lot of talking going on because I don't speak Wolof. And uh, it's a little rusty, my Wolof. Um, and so I'm sitting next to the, the chief, and his son is sitting next to me. And his son is about 25 and speaks a little bit of English. And through a translator and his broken English, he asked me the exact same question that the Australian billionaire. Why have you come? Why have you gone, come all this way? One last story. My wife and I were working amongst college students in New Delhi, India. 
And we were doing a little cafe where you could, it was like a discussion, you could ask questions, and, and uh, there were a bunch of unbelievers, and there was a, a, a Hindu college student who came to the, the, the discussion, the cafe discussion, and, and he sat at our table, and again, uh, he, he spoke English, and so we're talking, and we're doing this discussion back and forth, and, and, uh, and we turn things to spiritual things, and he asked me the exact, why have you come? Why have you come all this way? And it gets to the heart of the question that I think we're going to see in this passage today, which is, what drives missions? Or what drives us to missions? Now, we can talk about the Great Commission. I know the theme this weekend is the Great Commission, and, and, uh, and, and we are commanded by our Lord to go and make disciples of all nations. And so that, that should absolutely be a motivating factor. But I shared with you a little bit about what I've seen in your pastor and his wife. And I think there's, a, there's something that our Lord is looking for in his disciples to create in his disciples, something that existed and exists in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I, I just want to, I'm just going to give you what I want to challenge you with this morning. I want to challenge us to develop the heart that our Savior has for the nations. In Matthew chapter 9, let's start in verse 35. I'm going to, I'm going to read the passage, and, uh, and I want to explore this passage with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, since we're dropping into the context, let me give you just where we're at. This is the point in Jesus' ministry where huge crowds are following him. This is right in the time where he's feeding the 5,000 people, right? So he's got 5,000 men we know of, but there were w- women and children. You, you're familiar with the story, I'm sure. And, and Jesus and his disciples feed those 5,000, could be many, many more. This is the time. And Jesus is traveling around and he's speaking to people, and many people are following him at this point. And we get to verse 35, and so we kind of just drop into the story here. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what he's going to accomplish. And while he's doing that, he's healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, we're told, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The interesting thing about this passage and why this passage captures my attention and my imagination is because it's one of the few places in Scripture we get a glimpse into what Jesus is feeling. Like, I love the fact that, that the, the, the scriptural writer, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records for us what Jesus when he looks at this crowd. And he specifically tells us that what Jesus was feeling was compassion. Now, what is compassion? Compassion is a deep awareness. Let me give you a definition, okay? So you can write this down in your notes and save it for later. 
Compassion is a deep awareness of the suffering of another person accompanied by actions to relieve it. It's being able to identify another person's pain so closely that you are prepared to act for their benefit. Okay, so it's, it's, it's being able to feel and sense as a deep awareness of the sufferings that someone else is going through accompanied with actions to relieve it, which is very different than empathy, okay? And Matthew could have said, well, Jesus looked at the crowd and he had empathy. And, and what is that? Empathy is understanding the feelings of others, right? Uh, and Matthew could have said, hey, Jesus looked on the crowd and he had empathy. He, he understood what they were going through. Matthew could have also told us that Jesus had sympathy for the crowd. Sympathy is not only I understand what you're going through, but that's kind of, sympathy is I feel your pain, right? I've been there. I felt your pain. And neither of those two words are used, and I think purposely, because Jesus not only understands their pain and not only feels their pain, but he has a deep awareness of their pain that's driving Jesus to action, And what did he see that drove him to action? What was he see that was stirring Jesus? And it's interesting because this this idea of compassion, uh, we typically think of like having a heart of compassion. Like if we we talked about it today, we'd say a heart of compassion. Uh, In biblical times, the, the seed of compassion, where compassion came from, was from your gut. And biblical authors, and during biblical times, the idea was you actually feel compassion. It's, it's something, have you ever seen someone, have you ever uh, seen someone in such need or something so terrible that, that it just, it, it turns, you feel it in your stomach. This is what Jesus is feeling, and it's driving him to action. So what did he see? Well, we're told specifically that he sees two things here, and I think it's worth getting to the bottom of what Jesus specifically says he saw. Now, I'm using the ESV version. You might have some different versions, but there's two words here that, that describe what he saw. The first word in, in, in the ESV version is he saw that the people were harassed. He looked at the crowd, and again, these are, te- these are thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people. And as Jesus is looking out over at the crowd, he sees that they are harassed. What does that, what does that mean? I think the for you to understand the word harassed well, you have to be a Discovery Channel junkie like I am, okay? If you've ever watched Discovery Channel or the, the Nat Geo or whatever those channels are, you, you've seen this, right? You've seen, you're flipping through the channels and you see this video and the video is the cougar or the, let's just go with cheetah, the cheetah in the tall grass, right? And he's in the tall grass and he's, he's crouched low, and, uh, and the music is ominous as it, it, it focuses on the cheetah. And then it goes to this little antelope eating grass. 
And he's over there, and the, the music gets light and airy, and the little antelope goes, oh, this is lovely. And he's eating the grass, minding his own business, not aware of anything. Then it pans back to the cheetah, and the cheetah's lower. And now, now you see the shoulder blades of the cat. You know, you see the shoulder blades rising and falling as he's creeping through the grass, and then back to the antelope. And just, oh, it's wonderful. Every, I'm having a great day. It's a Tuesday. Wonderful. I have nothing on my calendar today. And the back to the cheetah, back to the antelope, until all of a sudden, then the drums start playing, right? The, and the, when the drums start playing, then it's off, right? And the, and the cheetah takes off, and he's after the antelope, and they zig, and they zag, and they, and they go, and, and usually the, the, the antelope, you know, makes a hard cut, and the cheetah, like, kind of falls and stumbles, but he takes, have you, anybody seen this video before? Am I, okay, you've seen this video. And then sometimes David Attenborough lets the cheetah get the antelope, and sometimes he gets away, you know, and he will eat another day or whatever. I can't say it like David Attenborough. But what that antelope feels the moment it sees the cheetah after it, that's this idea of harassed. It literally means to be hunted down. It was used to describe flaying something. If you were to take a fish and flay a fish, right? Um, that, that's this word, to flay or to hunt something down, to go after something. It was used in biblical times to describe what a school of fish would do to meat when it was thrown into the water, okay? Like if you can imagine piranha, and uh, a, a river full of piranha, and you take some meat and you throw it in the river, and what happens to that meat when the piranha go after it? This word, hunted down, harassed, torn apart, ripped, flayed. That's what Jesus was seeing when he looked at the crowds. What Jesus was seeing is how the world is constantly harassing us. I told you a little bit about the Wolof people. The Wolof people are people that live in the Gambia and Senegal. And uh, they have the distinction of being uh, the tribe in Africa that was the most hunted for slaves. And during the, the uh, English and the American slaving uh, years, the Wolof people were the ones that were most desired and hunted. And so for years, Americans and English hunted down the Wolof people. And when slavery became illegal in England and the United States, then Muslim slave traders came in and continued stealing Wolof people and harassing them and taking them as slaves. Listen, the Wolof people today still feel that. And being a white Anglo-Saxon missionary amongst the Wolof people is difficult because how this people has been hunted down and they've been harassed. 
one of our missionaries who spent 35 years, she's just recently come home because she's battling cancer. She spent 35 years with the Wolof people, loving them and winning them to Christ and uh, giving 35 years of her life to learn the language and the culture and the people. And she pleaded with me when she saw me and because she's not going to be able to go back. She's not going to be able to continue the work. And, and she said, Paul, don't forget the Wolof people. They've been harassed. They've been hunted for hundreds of years. They need the hope of the gospel. And that's what Jesus was seeing. Jesus was seeing the sinfulness and the fallenness of this world. It's not just out there. It's in here too, right? We feel it. I mean, when you think about it, there's there's billion-dollar pornography industries out there right now hunting down... Rass and hunt down the souls of the younger generation of men and women. Demonic forces would like nothing more than us to explore things like recreational drugs, multiple sexual identities, gambling, dark, immersive video games, and, and the list could go on and on and on. Why? Because that's the deep grass where the cheetah hides. And all of those things are around us. They, they, they bombard us and they're after us. And if we give in to them, they will flay us. How many marriages have we seen ruined? How many lives? How, how many doing pastoral counseling? How many men and women have you talked to that are addicted to this substance or, or that fluid? Or the, so many are being flayed and harassed by the things of this world. We're told in 1 Peter 5.8 that our adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a what? A roaring lion. See, that analogy of that cheetah chasing that antelope was not an analogy that I created. It depicts what Satan is constantly doing. And this is what Jesus saw in people. He didn't see the pretty face that we put on. He didn't see the, the, the makeup and the, and, the, and the fresh clothes and the, and the pretty smile that we put on. He didn't see that. He saw beyond that. And he saw what was actually happening in our souls and how the world was flaying us. And Jesus sees all the sin and destruction and he wasn't revolted by it. It drew him in. This is the beautiful thing about compassion. When compassion sees people being harassed, it doesn't revolt. It doesn't, it doesn't back up and say, oh, that, uh. Compassion draws you in. Remember, it's a deep awareness of pain and suffering that causes or is accompanied by action. What Jesus saw drew him in. Now, there's another word here. Let's quickly go to the second word because... Um, Jesus saw that the people were harassed, but he also saw that the people were helpless. My, my version says helpless. And again, there's, uh, there's different translations that say this. But the word helpless there, and I think you'll see if you've got a different word or a different translation here, the, the Greek word used here literally means to throw down or disperse or to, or to thrust down. And the idea is, it's, it, it's, it's a helpless idea because um, 
it's like seeds being thrown. The word is used in other places in Scripture to talk about seeds that are being being thrown down like this. And and the idea is, is there's a helplessness of being thrown down. You're being thrown down. You're, you're, there's no power on your own. You have no power to stop what's happening to you. You're like a that a farmer throws down in the soil. You're just, that, that's where you're going to go. You're going you're gonna to go down. And the compassion that was building in Jesus' heart was a responsiveness to this idea of being harassed and flayed and hunted down and a helplessness to do anything about it. And it moved Jesus to compassion. And the interesting thing to me is what he does. And and again, this is what captures my imagination for this passage because not only do we see what Jesus was feeling, but then we see the action that accompanied this compassion because compassion isn't compassion unless it's followed by action. But the action that Jesus takes, it, it, it boggles my mind because I think we all understand that Jesus could have healed everything that was going on in that crowd, Right? He was healing every disease. We, we know this, okay? So he was healing the diseases. We, we see this back up in, uh, in verse 35, right? He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every disease and every affliction. So he's healing these things. So it would have been very easy for Jesus to, to heal the harassment too. I think he had the power to do it. But that's not the action he, he takes, And it's very interesting to me because for some reason, God in his divine plan of redeeming a people for himself, a forgiven, restored, and free people to himself, for whatever reason, God has chosen to use his disciples as a means to accomplish that. What Jesus does when he's, look look at the next verse. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What does Jesus do? Then he said to his disciples, Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says to his disciples an interesting verse. And he looks at them, so they're harassed, they're helpless, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're being thrown down, they're being flayed and thrown down like sheep uh, that are... Uh, and again, if you take that, that hunted down, it's like sheep without a shepherd. A wolf would hunt them down and, and throw them down and, and, and destroy them. Verse 37, and then Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, this is a weird thing to say when you're filled with compassion. I would typically think Jesus would be saying, you know, like, wow, look, look at that. Do you, know, do you know their story over there? You know what's going on in this family over here? This is this is this is really this is really. Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and commiserate with the people. Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, "The harvest is plentiful. Harvest waiting. There's a harvest of souls in front of us. They're harassed and they're helpless, but there's a harvest of souls. It's the harvest is not small." The harvest is plentiful. There's no shortage of people ready for the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus is revealing to his disciples that there are many, many people ripe for the inclusion into God's kingdom. But then he says, but there is something that's wrong. There's no shortage of ripe people, but there is a shortage of laborers. And so he immediately addresses the problem in verse 38. And can I be just transparent? He addresses it in a way that I would not have. Um, I was a pastor for 30 years, and uh, uh, I can tell you exactly how I would have worked on a labor shortage, (laughs) because I had to do it every year for vacation Bible school, okay? Uh, And what we would do when vacation Bible school came around is we would have someone carry around a clipboard. And they would go around every Sunday morning leading up to Vacation Bible School, and they'd say, Dave and Kathy, what are you guys doing uh, the week of Vacation Bible School? I said, well, we're conveniently taking vacation. No, you can help, and let, let's sign you up. And I would have gotten them signed up on the clipboard. And I would have gone to every... Uh, this probably happens here at Grace Life too. Okay, yeah. That's the approach I would have taken. And again... Jesus could have done multiple things here. He could have just healed the crowds himself. He could have gone around with a sign-up sheet with his disciples and said, listen, um, the harvest here is plentiful. There's a, there's a great harvest. It's the laborers that are few. So let's get signed clipboard on the, on the let's go get the harvest clipboard and let's get you signed up and, and, and get you working. Jesus doesn't do that either. Instead, he calls his disciples, look at verse 38. He calls his disciples, therefore, in other words, what, what, what is it therefore? He said, because there's a harassed and hurting people, because I have compassion welling up within me, there's a great awareness of what they're feeling, what they're going through. I'm driven to action. So therefore, here's Jesus' action. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field, into the harvest. What kind of compassionate response is that? I have to confess my American get-or-done kind of mentality that almost feels like a cop-out to me when I read it, if I'm transparent. It would be like me seeing a horrible situation in front of me and just saying, you know what, Um, let's pray about it. I'm a sign-up kind of guy. I want to just jump in. I'm a clipboard guy. Like, let's get going. And Jesus, instead of signing up his disciples right there at the moment, he calls his disciples to fervent, earnest prayer. And I want to confess, as I was skimming through the Scriptures, Prayer is perhaps not as weak a response as we might typically think at the forefront of our hand. Because Moses prayed and the Red Sea parted. Joshua prayed and the sun stood still. 
Joseph prayed and God delivered him from prison and made him number two in the kingdom. Samson prayed and God returned his strength for one final assault on the Philistines. Solomon prayed and became the wisest man who ever lived. Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for seven years. And Elisha prayed and God opened up his servant's eyes so that he could see the armies of the Lord surrounding them and protecting them. Prayer is not a weak response to the needs around us. Opportunity, wisdom, strength, deliverance, eyes to see, all of these things came from God's people praying. And if you think about it, uh, if I could lead one person to Christ every second for the rest of my life, I will barely make a dent in the lostness of this world. Beside it being impossible, I I would not even make a dent. But if the Holy Spirit began moving, and if the Holy Spirit began raising up laborers all over within the body of Christ, if the Holy Spirit movement, as as you pray earnestly to the Holy Spirit to, to raise up laborers for the harvest, If God were to move, now this is something that could make a difference in the lostness of the world. And it's interesting to me that this passage in Matthew chapter 9 shows up many chapters before Jesus commands his disciples to go. Because it's not until Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus rises from the grave and talks to his disciples, that's when he tells his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Before he sent us, he called us to pray. My challenge for us is simple, grace life. I would love to stand up here and give a sermon with a clipboard at the end and stand at the door and sign all of you up to be missionaries with ABWE. I would, I would love to do that. But I don't know that that's the biblical response when I see this passage. I would rather have you, church, praying earnestly the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. When was the last time you prayed earnestly for the Lord of the harvest? When was the last time you said something like, Lord, hear my, send me? Lord of the harvest, send laborers into the field. When was the last time we prayed earnestly, Lord, how do you want me to use my gifts, my talents, and my resources? When was the last time we prayed prayers like, Lord, what do you want me to give? Where do you want me to go? Lord, would you please send laborers into your harvest? Pastor, I I hesitate to even do this as, as a challenge because, again, my Americanism says, is that all? You just want me to pray? That's, re- that's really, do you want me to pray? 
No. What I'm looking for is the God that I know you worship who hears our prayers, who loves answering our prayers, who has told us in passage after passage after passage that He longs to hear His children come to Him and beseech Him for the things. He's a good Father. And if an earthly father would give good gifts, what would our heavenly Father give if we just ask? And so Grace, what I'm pleading with us this morning is would you be a people of prayer that wouldn't see the statistics that were on the video earlier and have our eyes glaze over and say, I'm just one person. There's nothing that I can do about it. Yes, there is. Jesus tells you that if you see with compassionate eyes what's really going on with the lostness in the world, you will pray earnestly the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. Brothers and sisters, would you be a church of prayer? Father, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, it kind of rubs me the wrong way as an American. I, I, I want to sign up. I want to I do something. But Father, I'd rather be obedient and prayerful. And so as your people collectively this morning, we pray to you, Lord of the harvest, would you send laborers into your field? Lord of the harvest, would you help us to have a sober opinion of the gifts that you have given us? And if you've given us gifts to go, we will go. If you've given us gifts to send, we will send. If you want us to pray, Lord, we will be a people of prayer that will pray earnestly to you to send laborers into your field. Father, help us to have compassion. Help us to see what's going on in the world and that this lostness is not just one religion pinted against another. It's the hope of the world pitted against the darkness and lostness and afflaid and harassedness to drive us to action. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.